I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Working Capital Review. Looking for the best collection of ideas that drive global business? Go to workingcapitalreview.com, sign up with your email, and each day get a new smart post delivered. As regular listeners of this podcast know, I read a lot of books. Most of them, frankly, are excellent. Smart people making thoughtful arguments in engaging ways. Every once in a while, though, I read one that delivers something more. It shifts your lens on the world, alters your focus. New York Times chief television critic James Ponowasik has written that kind of book. Audience of One, Donald Trump Television and the Fracturing of America. He's written that kind of book not despite the fact that he analyzes television and American culture for a living, but because of it. We know Trump loves TV. We know he built his image through the New York media and that he was a reality TV star. We also know reality TV is hardly reality. What we may not have considered sufficiently is not what has happened to Trump over the years, but what has happened to us. How, as television and media changed over the last decades, so did we. And to put it bluntly, you might not like what we've become, or what's required virtually 24-7 to capture our attention. This book and conversation are part history, part current events, and all important. After all, as Panawazic writes, quote, Follow the media culture of America over the course of Trump's career, and you will understand better how Trump happened. Follow how Trump happened, and you'll understand better what we became. And you may wonder, as I asked Panawazic, whether any potential Democratic candidate understands any of this well enough to beat Trump in 2020. Two notes before my conversation with James. One, I spoke with him before House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced the official impeachment inquiry of Donald Trump. But already, even in these earliest days, I see evidence of what James writes about at play in the way Trump and his team are responding. My second note is an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Several more of you did it over the last weeks. Thank you for that. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with James Ponowazic. James, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot for having me on. So do I understand this correctly? This all began really because your parents let you watch, quote, more television as a child than may have been strictly advisable. Um, is that true? And, <laughs> and, and could you quantify that for me? That's my origin story. Uh, that is my radioactive spider, uh, I guess. <laughs> and uh, uh, Can I quantify it? Um, you know... <laughs> No, it was it was you know I'm sure like the the regular American child amount in the okay. 70s and 80s, which was too much. Right, right. Uh, which... You know, combined with the fact that I had older siblings and so also watched a lot of age inappropriate television, right. all, which all is, sorts of bad know, influences. Yeah. Yeah, maybe not great developmentally, but good <laughs> professional training. Well, well, I've got to say, you've really put me and others in a quandary because I loved the book. I, I, I mean, I, I think it's exceptional. And you seem interesting and put together. 
but I really, you know, I fight against my own kids watching that much television. So anyhow, I'll have to work that, you know, I have oh, to work out my own. Likewise. Like, okay. Fi- I'm, I'm a, yeah, you know, I'm a, uh, people of my generation, I'm a tyrant about my kids' screen time. It's the same thing, have, you know, how you hear about Silicon Valley people not giving their kids phones. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we all wrestle with that. You, you know, it's like I tell my kids, if, if I can't be hypocritical, what's the point of being a parent? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's an important lesson to teach. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty proud of, of that aspect. Okay, well, so maybe parenting uh, self-help will be your next book. Um, but for this one, um, re- you know, really just a, a, a wonderful offering. Um, it's about the rest of society and television um, and and America and uh, Donald Trump. Um, and so so let's get right into it. Your, your core thesis yeah. Um, is that Trump isn't a person or isn't so much a person. He's a, he's a TV character. What do you mean? Uh, I mean that, you know, obviously there is a human person named Donald John Trump that occupies a physical body and has childhood experiences and, and so forth. Um, but for the purposes of this book, and I think maybe for the purposes of the country that elected him and is living with him as president, um, that is less important. In other words, the, the sort of, you know, quote unquote, real psychologizable Donald Trump is, is less important than the, the media performance, which has existed on the public stage for, you know, a good 40 years now, at least uh, of this person who was always conscious of celebrity and being in the public eye and uh, presenting a sort of performative version of himself in mm. the media of his time to get attention. You know, that is, that is, it's the main thing about him, not a secondary thing about him. You know, it, it was, it was, that was how he created his business career. It wasn't a byproduct of his business career. He learned that, you know, if you, project an image through television in a television society uh, that becomes a brand, it becomes celebrity and it becomes something that you can leverage into other fields. So, you know, it's it, 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 basically to understand, you know, the Donald Trump who matters to us, you want to understand the TV performance that he's given. And is that what you mean? Because, you know, the, the, the um, subtitle of your book, and you make clear in your framing of what it's about, yes, of course, the book is about Donald Trump. Of course, that's your news peg. Of course, as, as you note somewhere, I, I forget where I read it in, in your book, that you know that was what helped encourage, whether it was your agent or your book editor, to say, okay, man, c- can you now finally write the book? I think you know the time is now right. I think it was like in 2016 after he won. But sure, it's, yeah. it's not just about Trump. You, you also write about, you know, you're also writing about television. Um, and as you put it, um, the fracturing of America. And so with what you were just saying to me, does that, is that what you mean when you note that Trump's political rise was the result of changes you'd been writing about for 20 years? And, and by the way, I don't know how someone times it out to become you know, a TV critic um, the same time that Sopranos is premiering. I mean, that's really well played, I've got, I've got to say. Um, but, uh, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but as you write, um, he was the result of changes that you'd been writing about for 20 years, um, and here's the key phrase, without realizing how they were connected until they converged in him. So what were, I guess you kind of just explained what those changes were in television, but maybe take me through that a little bit more. What were those changes? How were they connected? And how did they converge in him? Sure. So, so big picture, 
the book, the way I see it, is it's kind of a dual story, almost a dual biography of, mm-hmm. as I was saying, Donald Trump, the television character, and of American television itself. And particularly, you know, if, if I'm approaching this from the frame of how do we get to the point where the host of The Apprentice could become elected president, uh, you, know, you have to understand both that person and you have to understand how the medium of television changed from you know its its mid 20th century origins to the present day, and uh, the subtitle uh, Donald Trump Television and, and the Fracturing of America. The fracturing is in part a story of media fragmentation, which is to say that television from its early days went from being a sort of monocultural, monolithic, three-network medium with massive audiences, which meant that everything on television had to draw tens of million viewers and be broadly appealing to today's niche media of thousands of cable channels and social media feeds and podcasts, et cetera, et cetera, that break down the audience into smaller and smaller bits and that promotes and uh, rewards different kinds of programming which you know can often be sort of more specialized and often more polarizing and that has effects not just in entertainment but in you know the public forum that TV is including politics so a lot of these things as a TV critic you know they're naturally you know I've been writing in one way or another about the fragmentation of the media and how that changes the media landscape I've been writing a lot about reality television about cable TV and cable news and the politicization and the political polarization of news on TV and you know I've been writing about the rise of you know charismatic, you know, cable anti-heroes that audiences rooted for despite themselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but with the elevation to president of this man made out of television, you know, the, the, this, this, yeah. this guy yeah. who, who, who realized his, his possibilities by becoming a star within, suddenly this is a story with a protagonist and an arc, you know, and a, a narrative thrust. And, you know, I realized that so many of these things that were, you know, individually I had seen as very culturally influential, reality TV, cable news, et cetera, et cetera, uh, all of them had a piece of Donald Trump and the persona of him and the, the reasons that he rose to, you know, went from being sort of an 80s nostalgia figure to a political figure of prominence. Uh, so, you know, so, so, so that's, that's what I mean by that, 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 that. It was it was a real world confirmation of something that I'd sort of always believed in the abstract, which is that TV is very influential in real life. And now, wham, here was this, you know, concrete evidence of that. It's totally concrete evidence. And what you've done, I think, at least what you did for me in in reading it and reading it as that dual biography is you've kind of changed my lens you've changed my own viewing habit and i think this I, I, I think this is what one gets from your book you've changed the way one views what's going on you've you've you, you know you, all of a sudden i'm kind of now looking at the reality uh, you know the daily reality and i'm looking back now over the last you know two to, to five years or two to four years let's say uh, of you know having trump in my life and I'm I'm viewing it all differently, and you kind of note that 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 journalists, so many journalists, 
gave what you called um, incidental attention to Trump's life in media, treating it as ancillary to his business pursuits and his political exploits. And I, I, I was, found myself wondering, did you see that the whole time, like as, as Trump threw out that, the, the whole, you know, the, the run up and the campaign and then these, you know, him as president, have you seen it? The, did you see it the whole time? And have you kind of been, you know, screaming as you see other coverage and say, you know, people trying to take a psychological approach or a political approach and saying, you guys just don't get it. It's about the TV. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel, you know, TV isn't everything. There's no, you know, no phenomenon like this has one explanation. I think it's a, it's a piece and the one that I know best. And it's, it's a very important piece that I do feel has often been reduced to kind of a glib. Oh, it's a crazy reality show that we all live in now, you know. Uh, but in fact, I just, I feel TV is the nervous system of this country. It's, you know, one of mm. its chief art forms. It is uh, one of its chief forms of communication and of influence. It's the form in which politics plays out. And so I think you need to understand it on a more holistic level to understand some of this stuff. Uh, so, um, you know, I don't want to say, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I was a prophet, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, I saw once, you know, once Donald Trump went on the air on NBC in 2004, I knew that this was going to be, you know, this guy was going to be president within 20 years. Uh, no, but you know, history always looks inevitable in retrospect. Mm. But, you know, I would say that as somebody, I think, and I think that if, you know, you, somebody as a political reporter were more immersed in reality television, had watched more of The Apprentice, who knew how these archetypes and, you know, story forms that, you know, millions of Americans had embraced work, there would be stuff that they would have been less surprised by. I think they would have at least taken more seriously his chances, say, of winning the Republican primary, just to take a quick example. Uh, when you remember back to the early Republican primary debates, there was a lot of dumbfoundedness uh, among pundits about Donald Trump's approach. You know, he was just combative with everybody. And he would do things like, you know, he would launch into an attack on somebody like, you know, Rand Paul, who was sharing the stage with him yeah. and was maybe 20 points behind him in the polls. And you would always have this comment of, why is Donald Trump engaging in this pointless fight? Well, that's what you say if you don't watch reality TV. You know, if you watch, if you do watch reality TV, you know that a field of 16 candidates, that's the size of a reality TV season. Yeah. And it's, a, it's an elimination competition show. And in that format, the fighting is the point. It shows that you're a fighter. You know, it sends that message to your supporters. It gets you attention. It makes sure that you don't get lost in the edit and become unimportant. It makes you the protagonist of, of that show. And, you know, and so that was very... And again, I, I try not to get bogged down in the whole, you know, is he, you know, being acting with intent or instinctually one way or the other. Right. That was the perfect way for him to approach it. For the three people who don't watch reality TV, but for the millions um, who don't admit to watching reality <laughs> TV, why do we like it? Why has it endured for nearly 20 years now? I mean, I'll tell you why I like it. I should, I should say, you know, up front, I don't consider myself a snob about reality TV. No. I watch a lot of it. Um, you know, I still watch Survivor. Uh, I thought yeah. that the first seasons of The Apprentice were really well-produced uh, television. I mean, for one thing, it can, n number one, you know, a lot of these shows are simply tremendously entertaining. Number two, I think when um, shows like Survivor first sort of popularized the medium on network television, 
you know, Survivor came out in 2000, they sort of performed the same role for the networks that something like The Sopranos did for HBO, which is to say, here's a thing that, you know, you didn't used to be able to see on Mm. TV, and now you can. So there's that sort of sense of, you know, that initial sense of of transgression. And then there's they're also rooted in this notion, which is really powerful in our culture and not coincidentally really powerful in, in politics of authenticity. Right. What's the famous slogan of MTV's The Real World? Here's what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. And so there's that promise of, you know, you're going to see a side of people that, you know, ordinary scripted television doesn't show you. And that maybe people in your own lives don't show you because they are too sort of constricted by, you know, our our social mores. So, you know, there's that. And finally, um, there, there is a, a, a view of reality TV fans, which I reject, which says that, you know, they're just sort of dupes and they watch the stuff and they think it's all real and there's no artifice or editing in it. And I think it's not true. Nobody's more suspicious of reality TV than reality TV fans. You know, in a way, it's kind of part of the pleasure of watching reality TV, anticipating how you're being manipulated. You know, who's acting out, putting on a false face, you know, whether the editing is trying to, you know, tell you that the episode's going to go this way so that you can be surprised when it goes that way. Uh, and and that sort of appeal to savviness is also something that I think politicians and Donald Trump in particular uh, kind of appealed to in his candidacy, mm-hmm. you know, with his whole because he existed in the sphere of, you know, joking and not joking. And, you know, this is you know kind of real, but it's kind of a show. And you can take me, you know, totally seriously when I say this offensive thing or you can kind of accept it with a wink, but still accept it. Uh, so, you know, I, th- I think those are, those are all parts of its appeal and some of them kind of resonate beyond entertainment too. Well, th- that component of what you wrote, I think it offers a huge contribution to, um, understanding. And it was one of the factors that, that really did alter my lens. There, there's another, um, kind of quality that you wrote about and, and you noted recently in a tweet that you apparently have created and I would say that you have created the Caddyshack theory of American politics. Um, I, I loved that <laughs> yeah. section of the book as well. So for um, the two young among us, um, who were Al Servic uh, and Judge Smales and what do they have to do with Trump's rise? So uh, Caddyshack was a 1980s comedy movie. Uh, took place at a golf club uh, where Rodney Dangerfield, uh, uh, the the once famous comedian, played Al Cervic, uh, a real estate developer. (laughs) This Mm. this, uh, sort of loud, Loud. mouthy, boorish, obnoxious, super rich guy. Yes, loud. uh, (laughs) Loud. Very loud, very (laughs) offensive, insulting, doesn't care what you think of him because he's too rich to have to care, right? (laughs) And he is sort of positioned against the sort of snooty, uptight kind of rich people that everybody hates, at, you know, the audiences hate uh, at the country club. Judge Smales. Uh, and particularly Judge Smales, uh, the big cheese at the country club, who was played by Ted Knight. Uh, and, and, and this was sort of an interesting emerging archetype at the time because, you know, this is like the turn of the 80s when pop culture is going to start becoming more sympathetic to certain kinds of rich people. And it creates this character of, okay, Al Cervic is, you know, you as a rich person. Like, mm. this is what I'd be like if I won the lottery. You know, I would, I would have 
so much money, I wouldn't have to care, and I would just be me, and the rest of those, you know, uptight SOBs, they can just stick it. And you, you watch Donald Trump, you know, it, again, particularly through, you know, in, in a lot of his sort of cultivated, quote-unquote, blue-collar billionaire image, but also particularly in the way he handled himself in the 2016 uh, Republican election, he basically cast himself as Al Cervic, uh, sort of, you know, riding up on his big obnoxious yacht and spraying wake all over the, the classy sailboats. And he cast a lot of his establishment opponents, like Jeb Bush, you know, son yep. of privilege, as his Judge Smaleses, you know, who he would just, he, uh, you know, insult their dignity and insult their families and refuse to apologize. Uh, and, and, you know, for uh, his, his, his base and his fans, it was, it was delightful. He's just, you know, deep, deep uh, these figures in public and, you know, people have learned to, you know, cheer for that kind of figure for a long time. You know, it's, it's like the, the clampets and the Drysdales on Beverly Hillbillies to use an even more ancient <laughs> reference. Yeah. Well, well, you, you connect it all the way, um, back through and, and that's uh, part of the charm of, of what you've written as well. Um, is Twitter Trump's own TV channel or should we not think of it as a TV channel? Twitter serves the purposes for Trump kind of the way it originally did for a lot of celebrities. You know, uh, you know, your Kanye West and Kim Kardashians of the world, which is that it, it enables them to be serve as their own publicists and, you know, kind of create a channel for themselves independent of media gatekeepers. Uh, and, you know, <clears throat> what, Don, what Donald Trump did when he started uh, using Twitter a lot when he was uh, host of The Celebrity Apprentice and was starting to become a, a more a, a popular figure on Fox News, uh, was that he, for one thing, you gradually see his introduction in politics through his Twitter feed, where yeah. uh, first it's a lot of anodyne celebrity tweets, and then suddenly in like 2011, it's like somebody flips the switch, and it, there, there's so much politics, and he launches uh, the whole you know birther crusade on there before he's talking about it on television. Um, it, and, and this all uh, allows him it's, – it's not so much that it is you know, a personal TV network, although it is kind of a personal form of programming, but it is sort of a force amplifier for one's TV presence. Uh, you know, it, it allows him to get immediate feedback and road test ideas mm. that play with the same conservative base that he's talking to as a weekly guest on Fox and Friends, which he was doing at the time. Uh, it allows him to, you know, sort of push boundaries and get even farther into conspiracy theories than at the time, say, Fox would let him go. Uh, he first starts talking about building a wall on Twitter. Uh, you know, so it's this kind of R&D division and, and it, for, for, for his ideas and uh, uh, political, you know, political lines. And then, of course, as you jump ahead to, to uh, when he's president now, um, he is both using Twitter to react to the television that he watches voluminously, and it ends up, uh, you know, often programming the news cycle, particularly for cable news, uh, because so much of the news is what did President Trump get angry about and tweet about today. Yeah. Uh, so, so it, you know, it is... Um, you know, it is a powerful force, but part of its power still comes from the fact, you know, particularly in politics, that it is amplified by television. 
Let's talk a little bit because so much of the Twitter feed and obviously so much of what uh, um, you know Trump talks about, um, although uh, staunch defenders of his uh, deny that he has ever done it, um, are lies, are things that are just flat out not true. Um, yeah. 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 Although uh, you know, people who defend him say that, uh, like the uh, White House press secretary, I think recently said that he has uh, never lied. What role do truth and lies play in the way and the why that we watch this show? Um, Donald Trump has thrived through a lot of his entertainment career in formats where there's sort of a fuzzy boundary between truth and lie. Truthiness. Uh, and, and career. As yeah, Colbert used yes, to exactly. say, right? yeah. things, things, yeah, things that that feel like truth, or things that um, just, just you know, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this, but besides reality TV, uh, Donald Trump had a a not small side career in uh, professional wrestling, mm-hmm. uh, where he was, you know, a, a frequent cameo guest. Uh, at WWE events, he's a WWE Hall of Fame member. Uh, and in wrestling, you have this this concept called kayfabe. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, which is the the notion, the illusion that the animosities inside the ring are real, and the wrestlers actually hate each other, and so on. And in the early days of wrestling, you know, people literally bought into it. Over time, it became kind of this more sophisticated relationship. Uh, you know, where where um. Uh, you know, you sort of knew that wrestling was all put on, but also you could really invest it. And maybe you'd think some of it was true. Maybe you'd think, you know, a certain percentage. You could kind of decide the level that you wanted to buy in. And I think that Donald, Donald Trump, uh, you know, who once created the, in, in the 1980s, uh, the phrase truthful hyperbole for mm-hmm. when he would say lie about, you know, the number of floors in Trump Tower, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, he has taken advantage of this to create a sort of per, a permission structure among his political followers where you can either rationalize lies or you can accept them as as true as you want to be and and say that you can tell yourself that you're sophisticated for doing it you know that everybody is you know trying to put something over on somebody so really going along with something that you know even on some level you know to be untrue is okay because it's good for your side because it makes the wrong, you know the right people angry and so forth uh you know a great example of this i think is why he you know co-opted the the term fake news fake news mm. which used to mean something real and different like he used to refer to actual online hoaxes that you know uh, yes. uh looked like real news stories but 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 weren't but now when he uses fake news Honestly, I think very few people at this point take that literally in the sense of, oh, this thing is absolutely false and made up from whole cloth. You know, fake news can mean anything from that to, well, this is true, but it's disrespectful. It's true, but it shouldn't be emphasized this way. It's true, but I don't like the tone. And, you know, again, when you apply, that's one thing when you, you know, take this sort of, you know, fuzziness uh, and apply it to something like wrestling entertainment. But when you apply it to politics, uh, you can sort of you know, give people permission for this kind of cynicism uh, that can you know, create an environment in which the truth just doesn't matter anymore. How do you connect any of this to the health of our democracy? And, and do you see one as more a reflection of the other? Is, is our willingness and embrace of truthiness a, a reflection of the state of our democracy, or is it the other way around that that the pushing of the boundaries yeah. has what is is 
pushing our democracy in perhaps a not so attractive direction? Yeah, it's, you know, it, that's a really good question. And it's tough because I think so many of these things are kind of a feedback loop where, you know, one thing feeds the other. You know, mm-hmm. I look, I think certainly, uh, you know, having an environment in which, you know, truth becomes optional is not healthy for a democracy. It's, it's, it's better for a system in which the people are collectively, you know, making the decisions through the ballot box to have some basis of agreed on facts, you know, uh, and when you have uh, just, you know, a straight up lies and disregard from, for the truth, uh, you know, not just, you know, normal political fibs, but, you know, kind of assault on the idea of, of shared truth coming from, you know, the, 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 the highest office in the country, uh, that it has a kind of corrupting effect. But also, you know, I don't think that one president can do that on their own. I don't think that that is something that can come out of the popular culture on its own. In order for people to buy into that, you have to have something going on in, you know, the political sphere, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which I think, you know, is this polarization, which partly has to do with the media and partly has to do with other things, uh, where it, it kind of becomes like professional sports, you know, and team identity and what's good for the team takes precedence over anything and can be used to rationalize anything. So just like when you're watching a football game and somehow you magically believe that no controversial referees call should ever go against your team, uh, you know, people start applying that same view to politics. Looking ahead and to, to, to close out the, the conversation, James, yeah. um, two, two things are crossing my mind. One is um, you wrote – if TV is now not just a political tool, um, uh, oh no, you sorry, you wrote TV now is not just a political tool, but a presidential qualification in itself. Um, I'm thinking about the Democrats and the Democrat candidates, and as we speak, the two front runners are Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren right now. Does either mm-hmm. one of them seem like programming that could encourage Americans to change the channel? Well, conceivably, but they're two very different kinds. I'm going to partly dodge your question because, you know, I'm probably a terrible uh, uh, election prognosticator. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that, you know, elections, yeah, they, they are battles of stories. They, they take place in, in television now. That, that, is, that, that is not to say that from here on forth you need to be a reality TV star in order to get elected president. You know, it does mean that elections are contests of stories and contests for attention. And whether you believe that, you know, should be the case or not, you have to fight in an arena where, you know, there is a certain sort of showbiz attention getting aspect to it. Now, Biden and Warren, just to take, you know, to take them as examples, they kind of represent a, a dichotomy of two schools of thought, right? Mm. Biden is the notion that people are exhausted by Trump and the whole national environment. And you promise them that, uh, you know, I'll let you turn the show off for at least four years and people will appreciate the rest. Um, you know, Warren and I think other Democrats have, you know, some version of this is, is more about counter programming, you know, mm. and you need to create a, 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 a branding and a strategy. And, you know, things that Warren does as much as she's identified as a wonk, you know, the, the I have a plan line that is, you know, commercial branding. The selfie lines are, are a media strategy. You know, you have to give people something else. I will say I am sort of 
suspicious of the notion that you can just replace something with nothing and offer people the chance to turn off the show as an election strategy because the show is still going to go on on cable news and you're offering your opponent the chance to be the protagonist. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I tend to think that you've got to have some plan for how you're going to counter-program him. And, uh, you know, I don't know if Biden does. I don't know either, but that was exactly the analysis that I was looking for from you, was how, with your understanding of and reporting of American culture and American society um, over the years, how do you interpret, you know, kind of where we are as a culture? And I think that you, you just framed the question, you know, do, would will Americans simply turn off the television or do we never turn off the television? And instead, the only thing, you know, what causes a show to to go into a finale? Um, is it because we, you know, we've stopped using the medium or is it because our interest has moved in, into another direction? Um, and I guess that would be the, the last question is, uh, you know, does does Richard Hatch ever get voted off the island? Well, you know, Richard Hatch uh, didn't, didn't won the first season of Survivor, but I think that maybe the the better analogy is the the, the arc of The Apprentice. Hmm. Um, you know, Donald Trump stayed on The Apprentice for fourteen seasons. However. There is also such a thing in television as overexposure and burnout. And The Apprentice was a genuine phenomenon in its first season. Um, you know, it, uh, and then it, it, it did what TV shows often do, which is to, you know, overexpose the star and program it a lot and, you know, uh, try to milk it as much as possible. And the ratings dropped off pretty quickly because, you know, people tend to get burned out on the same shtick over and over again. Now, in television, you can survive that if, you know, if, if your ratings and your cost structure is good enough that, you know, you can go by without ever winning your time slot anymore. You can be profitable enough to keep on the air, even if you're finishing third to, you know, say Mike and Molly. Uh, but if you finish, finish third in an election, you, you lose. And, you know, uh, to look at it from a you know, political punditry standpoint, Donald Trump won a pretty close election last time. He does not necessarily have a lot of room to lose a lot of the demo and stay in place. So that is one thing his opponents have going for him is, you know, the hope that he's overexposed himself to the point that it's a liability. James, so thank whether you. Whether that's true or not, I can't predict. Sorry. Of course not. No no predictions here. James, thank yeah. you for your time and, and for the book. Uh, a really, really um, excellent read and analysis. Thanks. I love talking about it. That was my conversation with James Ponowasek. My thanks to James for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.